Jess Brady is next. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Good afternoon and welcome to the Friday edition of your afternoon show on 980 CFPL. I'm your host, Jess Brady. I hope you've had a a good day so far. We had some sunshine earlier. It's looking a little cloudy out there, but you know, maybe we'll see some blue patches of sky once again before the show is done. Fingers crossed. It is indeed Friday, as I mentioned, but that doesn't mean that we have any less busy of a show right now because it is a packed day, I will tell you that, and filled with uh, lots of uh, interesting things about what's going on here in the city and uh, elsewhere as we look at uh, a lot of COVID-19 related topics, but also some other issues happening here in the city. We'll get to all that uh, coming up, but we're going to dive right into our first uh, interview. And it's, you know, I've said this a lot. We've had the chance to catch up with pros and doctors and researchers uh, at Western and at Lawson Health Research Institute so much in the last few weeks. And it's a real privilege to talk to them about the work that they're doing. And that's where we're beginning the show today. Uh, there is a new uh, worldwide study that uh, Lawson Health Research Institute and Western are involved in. And it's looking at some of those early symptoms of COVID-19 and trying to get a better sense of why why people are experiencing at least this one very particular uh, symptom. And it's going to be very interesting to learn more about this. And to tell us more on the line right now is Dr. Lee Sowerby, Associate Scientist at Lawson and Associate Professor at Western University Schulich School of Medicine. Dr. Sowerby, thank you so much for your time today. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. It's, uh, as I said, always a pleasure to learn about the work that's going on at Lawson and at Western. It's fascinating, uh, but especially in this day and age when we're dealing with COVID-19, to know that such uh, excellent work is happening right here in our backyard, it's very interesting. Tell us a little bit about this uh, study that's happening right now. Sure. So, you know, it's interesting. I'm a a nose surgeon and spent a lot of time uh, dealing with problems of noses. Um, and the loss of smell or anosmia is something that, you know, presents to me a few times a year, um, as it does everywhere else in the world. And it actually began back uh, in mid-March with one of our colleagues in the UK, where she noticed that in one day she had five patients present with an isolated loss of smell. Now, we've all been there where we've had, you know, like a cold or your allergies kick up and you know, you've got a runny nose, you're congested, you can't breathe through your nose, and your sense of smell has also decreased. But these patients were actually presenting with no other nasal symptoms than just loss of smell. And something triggered for her, and she uh, started looking into it a little bit further. And sure enough, those patients all ultimately went on to test positive for COVID-19. And that really started this whole cascade of interest in the effect of uh, this coronavirus on the sense of smell. And also, particularly as a, as a potential marker for patients who are otherwise asymptomatic, more and more it does seem that in this particular cohort of patients with COVID-19, that the loss of smell may actually be a marker we can use to help pick out people that otherwise uh, would slip through the cracks. Yeah, it's interesting that, you know, all of those patients from your colleague went on to uh, then eventually test positive, as you were saying. Um, and it, I remember when this started to be more well known as as a symptom, an early symptom, and people kind of thought, oh, that's strange. So they were kind of testing themselves and going to their cupboards, pulling out peanut butter, different <laughs> uh, items that they could smell to see if, uh, if they if their sense of smell was intact. It was almost like a, it was a pretty good a litmus test. Totally. And, it, you know, it's interesting, the, 
Um, smell is one of those, we, we often describe it as the, the lost sense where, you know, people don't really appreciate the sense of smell uh, and its role actually also in, in what we consider taste or flavor uh, until it's gone. And it's only once, once you've lost it that you um, really kind of realize how much uh, or how important it is in our day-to-day lives. Um, there's some of the more research that's coming out with this. It's amazing. There's, you know, for some of these studies that have looked at it, um, almost every patient that's been tested has had some degree of olfactory or some or smell dysfunction. Um, but it does, again, seem to be that there, there is a true and almost complete loss of smell uh, in this subset of patients that, that have um, no other nasal symptoms with it. That's amazing. I, when in reading some of the information that Lawson sent out about this study, uh, I think it, it said about sixty percent of those who have who have been diagnosed have had uh, some kind of uh, you know association with the loss of, of smell and taste. And I thought that's a very large uh, proportion of the people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that, those are the reported things. So there's, there's the question of you know are these the patients that end up being you know purely asymptomatic or are these the pre-symptomatic patients? So you know part of what we're doing with this global book consortium is. 500 researchers from around the world that are participating is really trying to collect a global experience with this and tease out those nuances of, you know, are these patients who, you know, remain asymptomatic with the loss of smell being the only symptom they present with, or do they go on to develop uh, COVID-19 and ultimately potentially more serious disease? So the survey, you know, our initial goal with the survey is to collect some of that data. Um, but we're also building a database from this um, of patients who've had COVID that have had the loss of smell. And we're going to be able to follow up with those patients at a later date for potential participation in other um, projects looking at you know, ways we could potentially help in bringing that smell back for those that don't have recovery. I think it's one of the things about all of the research that's going into uh, COVID-19 right now and so quickly uh, is is just the mass amount that we can learn uh, by banding together like this and, and having these global efforts. Is there any idea in, in terms of how many people may eventually like take part in, in this study and, and kind of get into the database? Like obviously it's hard to know how far it could extend, but is there a goal right now in terms of a number of people to participate? Well, you know, when you look at the numbers, there's well, almost, uh, you know, coming up on whatever million and a half people now that have been diagnosed with COVID-19 in the world. So, you know, theoretically, we have a potential sample size of a million, million plus people anyway. Um, you know, it's, as you said, it's amazing in this, in this stage with, with technology the way it is on a Zoom meeting where there was 130 researchers from around the world on Zoom at the same time discussing this topic. And it's just, uh, it's, it's intellectually, it's amazing to think that you can share ideas that quickly um, with a, a group of like-minded scientists and advance things as quickly as we have. You know, in less than a month, really, we've, we've been able to get this together, have ethics approved, and roll this out internationally. With uh, This survey has been translated, I think, last count was into 20 different languages um, and rolled out, you know, really worldwide. So now it's my job to try and uh, increase our Canadian uptake and get people who've had that recent loss of smell to participate online. Fantastic. Yeah, that's amazing that it's it's spreading uh, so far and wide uh, to, to have so many people involved. I, I love that. I can only imagine uh, what that Zoom chat would have been like when uh, a Zoom chat with 12 people in my friend group gets a little chaotic. I can't imagine 135. <laughs> 
<laughs> that would be quite something. Um, so in terms of, uh, you know, you mentioned uh, getting the uptick uh, for Canadian participants. Uh, I've read that the, the survey is available publicly, but if, if people want to, uh, you know, take part and get involved in this, should they go through their family doctors or how should they go about doing it? Yeah, you know, the great thing is all they have to do is uh, we've created a website, uh, covidandsmell.com. And so if they go to that website, it will link them uh, directly to the questionnaire and they can put in the information uh, right from there. Perfect. Covidandsmell.com. I like that. All right. Nice and simple. Uh, Dr. Sowerby, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. It's been a real pleasure chatting with you and uh, we wish you lots of luck as the study continues. Hope you get all the information you need. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you helping us highlight this work. No worries. Anytime. You take care. All the best. Have a good weekend. You too. Thanks. Bye-bye. That's Dr. Lee Sowerby, Associate Scientist at Lawson and Associate Professor at Western University's Schulich School of Medicine and Dentistry. He is uh, a sinus surgeon, as he said, and uh, he is one of the team members working in Canada on this global uh, survey and database that they're trying to put together to look at the effect, or the symptom, I should say, of loss of smell and taste in relation to COVID-19. We need to take a break for traffic and weather. When we come back, we're checking in with the City of London to talk about uh, clarification when it comes to curbside pickup from businesses here in town. That's coming up on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to your afternoon show here on 980. It is Friday, April the 24th, just in case you need a little help keeping track. (laughs) These weeks just run by in a blur for me, so I would imagine that uh, it's the same for many others out there. But That is indeed the date, just in case you need to know. Something else you might need to know uh, is a bit of a refresher, perhaps, on what businesses should be open right now in the city and how they can still be open, Uh, very specific ways in which they're still allowed to be open, uh, you know, in this time of essential services only, as we try and, you know, flatten the curve of COVID-19 as much as possible. The city sent out an update uh, earlier on this morning to just send out that reminder uh, of the best practices and what people and businesses really need to keep in mind if they are open during this time to be, you know, open in appropriate ways. And an individual who knows like those rules like nobody else's business is Oris Katolik. He's the Chief Municipal Enforcement Officer for the City of London, and he joins me now. Oris, thanks for your time this afternoon. Not a problem, and I do need uh, reminders on what day of the week it is for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. Sometimes I'm like, wait, what day is it? (laughs) Yeah. Oh, my goodness. They do a little bit. And uh, that's why it's so good when we can uh, check in on these sorts of uh, stories and and have reminders put out there because uh, as things start to blur, sometimes we forget. And uh, it's good to have a little check in every once in a while, which the city is doing now. Uh, So tell me a little bit more about what's prompted this reminder uh, from the city about how businesses can stay open during these times. So once again, Jess, just as we did last week with the landscaping and uh, lawn maintenance uh, PSA we issued. We wanted to be proactive again and issue another announcement today because the province a few days ago released a Q&A on the essential services list. There definitely was some confusion um, across Ontario on what was permitted and not permitted, and that was very much focusing on curbside pickup. So the Q&A is very clear and and that's that essential services only are allowed to operate 
either through curbside pickup or delivery. And these essential services are hardware products, vehicle parts and supplies, pet and animal supplies, office supplies and computer products, including computer repair and safety supplies. So these businesses um, are deemed essential, can can be uh, open for curbside pickup only. So all the other businesses that don't fall in this category, they can continue to operate uh, as long as they offer uh, delivery of their goods. So they, they cannot offer curbside pickup. And we were getting a lot of uh, inquiries, phone calls, emails when the essential services list, the second list came out about three weeks ago. And our interpretation, and in fact, uh, some of the provincial interpretations was that uh, everybody could offer curbside pickup. You're not allowed to go in the store, but you can do uh, all your transactions basically in front of the store, as long as you comply with other safety measures such as social distancing. But now the province has made it very clear that uh, curbside pickup only applies to those limited businesses. Okay. And I think it's good that they were able to provide that clarification because, uh, you know, with so many updates coming down so frequently as the situation changes, it, it does get to be a little bit confusing as to, you know, where what the current score is in terms of all of these things. So it's it's helpful to have these clarifications uh, issued now just to, to make sure that everyone's on the same page. Yes, and we're taking very much a uh, educational approach because uh, I just checked, and uh, so as of last night, we, we've received around 5,500 emails and calls to our COVID-19 concern line, and we have provided uh, uh, previous information saying, um, yeah, as long as you're doing curbside pickup, you're doing it safely, you're, you're good to go, and, and we confirmed that when we uh, contacted the province, but now they've, they've come out with this written question and answer which is on online, and, and it is very clear. So we're taking an educational approach at this time. We're calling people back, saying no more new orders. Uh, the ones that you have in place, uh, go ahead with your curbside pickups, but nothing new, and uh, do your best to clear out your, your old orders. Right. And then anything new that comes in will have to be uh, by, like, delivery or, you know, just but no curbside. That's correct, yes. Okay. Okay. And and again, like if people have a question about uh, what should they do if they're a business owner or, you know, it's if they have more questions, they can always reach out to uh, the City of London uh, to have those questions uh, answered. Uh, they could, but, but our uh, initial advice is to go to the uh, provincial website. So simply if you just Google uh, Ontario and Essential, uh, the website comes up right away, and uh, everything is on there, and it's it's very clear in in our minds what's now permitted and what's not permitted. Perfect. Okay. Uh, good to know that uh, the resources are out there, the information is out there, uh, knowledge is power, as uh, I've been saying quite a lot recently, and uh, that way we'll we'll get answers to all of those questions. Orest, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. I appreciate it, and uh, you know for always being available to clarify all these issues. We uh, we enjoyed chatting with you about it. Not a problem, and have a good weekend. You as well. Stay safe. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye now. That's Oris Katolik, Chief Municipal Enforcement Officer for the City of London, uh, clarifying what it means, like which businesses are allowed to 
do curbside pickup, and those are essential businesses only. We have all of that information on our website, 980cfpl.ca, if you'd like to read up more on that. We need to take a break for the 3.30 News with Andrew Graham. When we come back, we'll be discussing uh, an issue between the county of Middlesex and the Middlesex on a Health Unit. My colleagues here at 980 CFPL have been busy following along with this story uh, for quite some time now, uh, but there were a couple of interviews that were done today, one with Mike Stubbs, one with Craig Needles, and we're going to play those back for you and give you a little bit more context. That's coming up on the 980 CFPL Afternoon Show. Welcome back to your afternoon show here on 980 CFPL. Jess Brady here, your host. Now, I told you just before the news that we were going to play a couple of interviews this half hour relating to uh, some allegations from Middlesex County officials. And it all stems back to the move by the health unit, Middlesex London Health Unit, from their old location of 50 King Street to their new location in uh, City Plaza, the old Galleria. So this, I mean, this story first started to be really spoken of uh, in general, uh, I think it was like last week or the week before, again, all the thing, all the days are blurring a little bit. There were concerns about items left behind uh, at 50 King Street by the health unit in their move. So there was a disagreement over what should have been left and what should have been taken. There were detailed discussions over uh, whether there was a misunderstanding uh, between county officials and the MLHU uh, over what should have been left there and what wasn't. Apparently, there were discussions at the Board of Health level uh, that a number of those items would be left there and would be taken of, uh, taken care of rather uh, by designated individuals. But now there is a letter from Middlesex County officials to the Privacy Commissioner claiming that there was personal data left behind on laptops that were left at the old location, 50 King Street. And so we have a full breakdown of this on our website, 980cfpl.ca, full article uh, by Jacqueline LaBelle, my colleague, uh, who's worked hard on this, obviously, uh, and are on the talk side to give some context to all of this, uh, Mike Stubbs, uh, uh, had a discussion earlier on today with Kathy Burkhart-Jessen, the Middlesex County Warden, uh, to talk about this letter that's been sent in to the Privacy Commissioner a little bit more. And we're going to re-air that discussion that he had at uh, during his show. And that's that's right now. So this is a, a, a chat between Mike Stubbs and Kathy Burkhart-Jessen, Middlesex County Warden. Mayor Burkhart-Jessen, thanks so much for your time today. Hey, no problem, Mike. It's good to be with you. Okay, let's let's begin with a, a letter. And again, you can go to globalnews.ca and you can read some of the quotes from this particular letter. It has been sent to the province's privacy commissioner and it's asking for guidance. Can you explain what that in a sense means? Well, um you're you're absolutely right. That's that's really what the letter does, Mike, is it asks the privacy commissioner for guidance. We have found, um, through no fault of our own, we've become in possession of um, potentially sensitive information. And um, we don't know what to do with it. It's not our information. Um, it is, uh, it would have, it 
came from the health units uh, discarded uh, technology equipment, and um, we are now in possession with it. And since we are not um, responsible for any sort of health information, we really need to be told how to how to deal with it. Gotcha. So can we talk about how much technical equipment, if, if it's computers or hard drives, is there a, a number to this? Um, I, uh, to be quite honest, I mean, there was a number of uh, technological uh, pieces of equipment that were left over at 50 King. Um, and it ranged anywhere from um, some older versions of laptops um, and then there was a number of desktop hard drives as well as portable printers and um, I'm not exactly sure of the numbers I believe that there might have been upwards of 70 hard drives um, but I'm not uh, sure of how many uh, portable printers there were and yeah so those are the kind of numbers we're looking at. So more than one hard drive that may have fallen under a desk or one computer that may have been left in a corner. That's correct. That's correct. Okay. We're talking with Kathy Burghardt-Jessen, who is the warden of Middlesex County and the mayor of Luke and Biddulph Township. We know that the Middlesex London Health Unit moved from 50 King Street to City Plaza, and we know that there had been items left behind. That was talked about in a story that we did last week. And now we're finding that a letter has been sent by Middlesex County asking for guidance from the Privacy Commissioner because the county is now in possession of what it would deem to be some personal information contained on these hard drives and computers. Uh, so when when you discovered these, was a call placed to the Middlesex London Health Unit to say, hey, did we, we found this, do you, do you need these back, or can we get these back to you? Was anything like that done? No, um, there that was not done, and that was done for a number of reasons. Um, basically because, you know, in this day and age, you know, everybody's personal private information, you know, that's, that's important stuff. And um, we really have to, we had to recognize, you know, the chain of possession and um, how that was going to flow. Um, just, just to be clear, how we came to know that there was information on um, some of these hard drives was, as I say, the, the equipment was left over and our IT department, you know, looked at it. And um, for the most part, a lot of it was in great shape. And so how could it be redeployed? How could it be used elsewhere? And um, in, in trying to look to see how that could work, uh, the IT department discovered that there was information on these hard drives immediately stopped the investigation um, because we don't want to be put into further breach. So uh, once we have this information that is not ours and we don't know how it should either, how those people affected um, should be notified, how the health unit should deal with it, we really felt that the best place to start was the uh, privacy commissioner. Okay. And so it, it was found that, that there was information on that uh, or on, on some of these, these technical, technical mm -hmm. items and, and that sort of thing. So mm -hmm. then in, in asking for that guidance, what are you hoping to discover? Next moves well, for this? Yeah. 
Yes. And, you know, it really could be as simple as taking it back to the health unit. Um, you know, that it, it really could be that simple. But, you know, if we had a breach, if the county had a breach of the of their own personal information of, you know, um, information that they've collected, you know, from, from taxpayers and that sort of thing, we would know how to deal with it. And we have a legislative responsibility to do that. Well, we have the same sort of thing with this information. So that's why the question for the guidance is because we do have a legislative responsibility. And if they tell us, you know, pick up the phone and um, speak speak to the health unit, get it back to them, then that's what they're doing. Then that's what we will do. Um, Wouldn't surprise me if um, they might be interested in having a meeting with the two partners with, with, um, you know, the landlord being the county and the tenant being um, the health unit to try and, and try to come to a solution. At any point, did the health unit reach out to the county to ask about this because of, you know, I know that this happened in the middle of a pandemic. I don't know exactly how that affected this, but I know there were a lot of people off site while all of this was taking place. So had they had they reached out to you to ask any questions about or, or ask for more time or anything like that? Certainly, um, I think, you know, it, it, it really has to be stressed that this move did not happen overnight. Um, there are board members who have publicly said that this move has been five years in the making. And um, health units started moving out of 50K the beginning of 2020, long before we were in the p- pandemic situation. And this takes nothing away from the work that they are doing now and how they have to respond to the situation that we are in now. Um, But at no time prior to March 31st, when their lease ended, did they ask if they could stay longer, that they had things that they had to move out. In fact, on March 31st, we received an email saying that, um, you know, the move was complete. This is where the keys were. The only piece of equipment that was left was um, a Xerox copying machine, and Xerox would be there to pick it up on on whatever date. The, at that, and we were we were two weeks then into uh, emergency and pandemic mode. And as far as we could, we were concerned at that point, they were out, um, and their move was complete. I do believe that last week that there was some correspondence that went back and forth between administrative staff, but uh, nothing came of that. But by then, their lease had already expired. Correct. Correct. And I mean, it's important to note, their lease expired uh, March 31st. Um, and we are, you know, we are, um, for all intents and purposes, we, we've got a, a buyer, um, and we are in the process of, of having to get that building ready for um, the next owner of that building. And we've got tight timelines. We have tight timelines. No doubt. We're talking with the warden of Middlesex County, Kathy Burkhardt-Jessen. Kathy, I guess as a final question, we've got three entities here in all of this and have had for a long time, and here we are getting to learn a, a lot more about the inner workings of public health than I think we, we ever mm-hmm. thought we would. When we've got the city, we've got the county, and we've got the health unit themselves, how is the relationship between the three entities? How would you describe it? Well, you know, um, Mike... I, I think if you you know you you look back on media reports, um, people might accuse the county of um, you know creating animosity, but that I don't see it that way. I really don't. Um, 
I believe that the work that the health unit does is important work. I am supportive of that work. Um, I want to make sure that my residents are properly serviced by the public health unit. And that's where, you know, a couple years ago, a lot of my concerns were. When it comes to a data breach and a breach of information, that is something that should be a concern for everyone. And, um, you know, we're just following uh, legislative steps. And I don't think, you know, I, I would be happy to sit down with Dr. Mackey and have a coffee with him. I'm with him once a week during his um, health unit briefings, and uh, I congratulate him on the work that he's doing with the pandemic. But this, these are separate issues. And um, just because we're in a pandemic doesn't mean that uh, we have to let other things fall to the side. Mayor Burkhardt, Jessen, thank you so much for your time, and please be safe in all of this. Thank you. Thanks very much, Mike. Good to talk to you. That was an earlier interview done by uh, my fantastic colleague, Mike Stubbs, uh, chatting with Kathy Burkhart Jessen, the warden of Middlesex, uh, talking about this letter that they've sent into the privacy commissioner asking for direction about what to do with some laptops that allegedly have uh, some personal information left on them that were left behind at 50 King Street. We need to take a quick break for traffic and weather. Then we're going to come right back and play you an interview that my colleague Craig Needles did with Dr. Mackey uh, earlier on this afternoon in response to this letter that's gone to the Privacy Commissioner. That's coming up on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to the afternoon show here on 980 CFPL. Before the break, you heard an interview with Mike Stubbs done earlier this afternoon with Kathy Burkhart Jessen. She's a warden of uh, Middlesex. County Middlesex, Middlesex County, if you will, uh, talking about a letter that they've sent to the Privacy Commissioner asking for guidance on what to do with some laptops that were left behind at the old health unit location at 50 King Street. They allege that there's some personal information on those laptops and that the county is not, you know, in a position to have access to that type of information. So they're asking the Privacy Commissioner for guidance on what to do with the laptops. Now, we've reached out, obviously, to the Middlesex on Health Unit to uh, get in contact with them and, you know, give them a chance to respond uh, to this and and kind of get their side of the story. And my colleague, Craig Needles, earlier on today, had a chat with the Medical Officer of Health for MLHU, Dr. Chris Mackey. And here's that discussion right now. So we've got this letter from the county that says that there were some computers. I'm not exactly sure how many left. I, I've been told from one person, uh, 70, but we're trying to get to the bottom of that, uh, left that uh, were not wiped during this move from 50 King. That's obviously something that uh, we had heard had not gone on. Your reaction to this letter of the Privacy Commissioner? Well, uh, as soon as we learned that there were laptops left behind last week, we reached out to the county asked to uh, collect them. Uh, they've chosen instead to investigate them themselves. Uh, you know, the thing that I think is most reassuring is that uh, there has been no release publicly of any personal health information or personal information at all. Uh, we do have connection with the county. We are working to get that equipment returned and to make sure that any information on it is dealt with appropriately. Our, our computer erasing techniques use the D-band technology which is military-grade erasing of the computers. Uh, and so it's not clear to me uh, that there actually was any personal health information left on these computers. Uh, we will be investigating that and taking appropriate action if there was. 
Okay, so when you say not clear uh, in the in in the release or the the I should say the letter that came from the health unit, they said that uh, uh, there was at least some financial records on there that they were concerned about and uh, uh, some other issues. They asked for the Ontario Privacy Commissioner for some advice on. Uh, so you think that th- th- this is a, a cursory look by the county and uh, they're not exactly sure what they found? Is what you're telling me here? Well, what I'm telling you is that my staff told me that we use DBAN military grade erasing techniques and that that was done with all that equipment so until i see it uh, i can't comment on exactly what was there okay Uh, and the most important thing though is that none of that information has been released publicly Uh, we will be retrieving that equipment from the county and dealing with it appropriately and that information not being released publicly obviously a very good thing but you can understand what the county was concerned here whereas some of this uh equipment was being left for uh, uh no longer usable no longer required so if they hadn't a thought to look then hypothetically something negative could have happened here right yes i understand the concern and certainly uh, we regret and apologize to the public for leaving that equipment behind uh, the equipment was in a, a, a vault that was closed when our movers went through. They missed it, uh, and that was very unfortunate and also completely understandable in the context of a pandemic where all of our staff are redeployed towards saving lives. And even movers, you know, we had a limited number of days to work with movers before they were deemed non-essential services and shut down as well. Uh, Dr. Mackey, I have to ask, when I asked you as to whether there was any uh, information left behind, uh, you told me that you th- that I already knew the answer to that question when I asked it. Uh, looking back on that, I-, I understand that you didn't know that at the time. I'm not saying that you told me something that uh, uh, was a lie by any stretch, but obviously there was a, a communication breakdown. Is-, is, that- is, that- is that fair to say as far as what occurred here uh, within this move? There certainly was a communication breakdown, and it's not clear where that was. Uh, I was told by our corporate services team that the computers had been wiped. And as far as I know, that is still the case. And until we see what is on the computers, I can't confirm anything otherwise. Oh, I uh, certainly understand that. Did you want to uh, uh, take a look yourselves? Uh, What would you hope the privacy commissioner says to the county? It will be my last question for you before we wrap up here. The privacy commissioner uh, will, if anything, direct the county to return the equipment, which is what we've been asking for for about a week now. So you're saying that the county uh, kept the equipment for themselves for what reason? They wanted to ask the privacy commissioner themselves. Do you know? Do you know why the county kept the equipment then? I'm not sure. You'll have to ask them. Okay, well, that's. Uh, I suppose exactly what we'll do. Uh, Dr. Mackey, thank you very much. I know it's uh, incredibly busy, but I'm glad that you give us a couple minutes on the program today. We appreciate it. Not at all, Craig. Thank you. Okay. Now that again was uh, Craig Needles. My colleague, um, earlier on this afternoon, he had a chat with Dr. Chris Mackey about this uh, letter from Middlesex County uh, going to the Privacy Commissioner asking for clarification on some laptops that were left behind in their move, which allegedly contain uh, personal information. So there you have it. Now, again, as I've said, we have the entire story on our website, 980cfpl.ca. You can read it. Uh, It's got, uh, you know, some more details about that letter that's been sent off to the Privacy Commissioner and uh, the allegations therein. Uh, And that interview uh, with Dr. Mackey, I would almost be certainly imagining is going to re-air on the Monday morning edition of the Craig Needle Show right here on 980cfpl. Craig, again, is back on the air as of 9 o'clock Monday morning. We need to take a break for 
for our four o'clock news. When we come back, we're talking about some technology that's uh, being put out by security experts here in Canada to help you avoid phishing and spam and malicious content online. That's coming up on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to your afternoon show here on 980 CFPL. Jess Brady here with you all afternoon long. Let me ask you, have you noticed more phishing attempts? I'm not talking about like fishing with a rod and a fish. I'm talking P-H-I-S, phishing. <laughs> so someone trying to steal away your data or personal information. Yeah, I definitely have noticed an uptick in those types of emails and other attempts, uh, different text messages uh, from unknown numbers, people trying to get you to click links that you obviously shouldn't. Those, of course, are not the only ways that we are susceptible to online attacks and digital attempts to, you know, pilfer our data. And thankfully, there are some people out there, you know, who are security pros and whizzes that are looking to help us out to combat those attempts to, you know, victimize us and try and get our personal information. There is, uh, I'm not, I don't want to call it a new tool, probably new to the general public. Um, and it's, it's called Canadian Shield, and it's from the Canadian Internet Registration Authority. They're working with uh, a few agencies to put this together, and it's basically a threat blocker. So the aim is to keep Canadians who are online safe from malicious content and uh, viruses and things of that nature. And it's going to be made available to Canadians in general. But what does it really mean for us? Uh, and is, is it a good tool? Should we be making use of it? It's a good question. Uh, someone joining me live on the line right now is security expert John Wunderlich. And uh, thank you so much for your time, John, uh, in going over this tool with us and kind of explaining what we need to know about it. Oh, John, can you hear me there? Sorry, uh, a COVID moment. I had my phone on mute. Happy to be here with you, Jeff. <laughs> that has happened to us quite a bit in the last few weeks, so I totally understand where you're coming from. Um, but yeah, it's, I'm, I'm glad you're here as well. I am a bit of a, a I, I mean, I know my way around a computer, but by no means am I super well-versed in security issues. So I, I'm, I'm always excited to talk to people who do know their stuff, which you absolutely do. So maybe take us through what this tool is, perhaps, and then what it means for us. Well, let's talk about the problem it's addressing. So if you think of your browser as uh, uh, something that takes you somewhere, the way an Uber takes you to a house, mm -hmm. and when you tell your browser, I want to go to the CBC, your driver probably knows where that is in London or in Toronto or wherever it is. But if the driver, if you say, take me to Jess's place, the driver says, I don't know where that is. What's the address? And then you'll give 123 Any Street or whatever your address is, and the driver knows where to go. So the DNS system, the domain name system that this is, uh, that this is uh, using or addresses, that's the system that your computer uses to figure out what the, what the address of the computer that you're telling it to go to. So when you go to CBC or uh, Jess's Place, what .com or .ca, that's what it does. And the tricky thing, and why last time I heard, or at least one recent statistic, 93% of mal malware is comes through email is because uh, people click on links. 
So the way that works is you'll see a link in an email, and it says cbc.ca. But behind the scenes, the address that's associated is, is badguyplace.com because there's a, they never show you the actual address. They just show you the name. And the way that you look up and connect names to addresses is the DNS system. So if you implement this Sierra Shield, which is relatively straightforward, what happens when you tell your browser or your computer to go to a location by looking up a name, what happens is that Sierra has a database of the known bad guy addresses and says, wait a minute, that's not CBC, that's Bad Guy Plaza. We're not going to let you go there, and you'll, and you'll get a message. I haven't tricked across it, but that's typically how those systems work. They're often built in enterprise, so if you work in CBC, this is uh, CBC, the enterprise IT department, will have something similar that says you can't browse anywhere. We're going to check where your web browser is going and, um, and so you don't go to Bad Guy Plaza. So this provides that enterprise type of protection or layer protection to everybody. Okay, um, and that makes perfect sense. I know that uh, in our in our chorus uh, and, and in global browsing uh, here at, at work, well, here I'm in my living room right now. But <laughs> generally, if if we go to a site, sometimes we'll get a warning saying we can't, you know, necessarily trace the security uh, for this site. Are you sure you want to proceed? Uh, because sometimes for news purposes, we we go to uh, mm -hmm. you know different sites that don't necessarily get a lot of traffic from the general public because we're investigating different things. Um, so I'm, I'm familiar with those types of uh, those types of messages that come up from time to time. So how will they then, I guess, implement this? How do people make use of this tool? Uh, do they have to go to a certain uh, site first in order to activate it? Or is it just going to automatically uh, go out there to everybody? Well, it's a set one and done kind of thing. Um, you have to take some technical steps. There, are, From the looks of the website, they don't have the phone apps ready yet, in which case it'll be a simple matter of installing the application. But for your home computer, your laptop, um, a couple of ways to do it. And uh, you have to go into the settings for either your home router or your, or, or your computer and make some uh, straightforward, uh, some relatively simple and straightforward changes. And they're explained on the website for, uh, for this. So instead of using Say you use um, I, this uh, or this provider for uh, for your internet service. All the providers will connect you with the will have a DNS lookup service. That's that's the service. So when you go to chorus uh, chorus .ca, they 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 come up with the the right address uh, for for chorus uh, or whatever whatever it happens to be. And now it says, no, no, I don't want the generic one that's out there because that's all, all. If the link has has a has a different name behind it, it I'm going to be fooled. So I want to go to this other service. And so it's pretty straightforward. But my advice is, if you read the instructions, you go, I don't understand. Whoever your family tech support person is, give them a call. They'll get it done in five minutes. <laughs> uh, now, sometimes I'm that family tech support service, <laughs> and it makes the me real nervous, John. Straight, no, the instructions are pretty straightforward. <laughs> they walk you exactly through what you need to do if you're on a Windows machine or on a, on a Mac, uh, even a game co console, and so forth and so on. So it's it's pretty straightforward. Perfect. You, well, I if, always love if that. You can see, if you can see numbers on the screen and type them accurately on the keyboard, you're pretty much good to go. 
Perfect. That's good. And if I run into any problems, maybe I'll just send you an email. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm here for you, Judge. The, the one thing I will say for, and this is for the more technically savvy people or who may already have installed uh, what's called a VPN. If you're mm-hmm. running a local VPN, uh, then then this doesn't work. The VPN will do uh, will do your uh, DNS name resolution and not your local one. So for if you've heard somebody like me say, well, you should be using a VPN and you're paying for VPN service, then that they this this advice will no longer work. Um, and you would need to do the research on your VPN provider and say, do you do DNS uh, relocation to prevent this? Um, but for for your listeners that are going VPN, I don't know what that is. Just follow the instructions and they'll be golden. Perfect. I love that. That's uh, good, concise information and advice from you, John. Thank you so much for your time today. I really no, appreciate you taking the chance to, to chat with us about this and give us the inside scoop on it. Happy surfing and safe surfing, Jeff. Absolutely. Thank you. You as well. And have a great weekend. You too. Bye now. Thanks. Bye-bye. That's John Wunderlich, tech security expert, talking to us about the new tool from Sira that is uh, meant to protect us from malware and malicious sites and all other uh, terrible things out on the internet and, uh, you know, try and keep our data and information as safe as possible. We need to take a break for traffic and weather. When we come back, we're checking in with the London Economic Development Corporation. They're holding a virtual job fair coming up. We're going to talk with Robert Collins of LEDC about that. Coming up on the 980 CFPL Afternoon Show. Welcome back to your afternoon show here on 980 CFPL. I'm your host, Jess Brady. So if you've ever been to a job fair, you know that typically it happens, say, at a convention center or a large hall, big space. Employers come out, they set up their booths, they have lots of pens, which I always like. Pens are fun. Uh, As well as business cards and information about their companies. And prospective job seekers tend to wander around and they bring their resumes and they hand them out. They have conversations with those employers and those representatives and they see if they can make a connection, find a match, get a new job. It's a great thing. And the London Economic Development Corporation has a lot of experience with connecting employers here in London with people looking for work. And they are used to running those types of uh, job fairs and and events where people can network. But in the time of COVID-19, you can't exactly go around glad handing, shaking hands and, and making those types of connections. We have to rethink that process. And that is exactly what LEDC is doing. They're holding a virtual job fair, which is coming up on Tuesday, May the 12th. Health. And joining us now on the line to explain how this is going to work is Robert Collins. He's the Director of Workforce Development for LEDC. Robert, it's been a while since you and I chatted, but I'm happy to have you on the line. It's wonderful to chat with you, Jess, and I'm pleased to hear that you're home and safe. Oh, thank you. Yes, and I hope you are as well, staying home yeah. as much as possible. Exactly. Yeah. So tell so, me a little bit about this, this job fair. How is this going to work? Well, it's going to be quite exciting, really, because uh, we... And, the, and we've got two sort of main purposes behind this particular job fair. Yes, we want uh, job seekers to find out about the, the range of employers that are currently hiring and, and so that those companies don't lose momentum and, uh, and job seekers connect. The second thing is we also want job seekers because we know they're worried about what, it, what the environment's going to be like when things start to, to, to open up again. 
and will they be recalled? Will there be opportunities to make sure they know about the services to to be able to help them make sure that their resume is the best to, to repractice their their interview skills if they haven't done that. So there's the op- there's going to be the opportunity at this job fair to virtually connect with both employers and and free employment uh, service agencies. So what will it look like? So a, a, a job seeker, they just need basically a, la- um, a, a, a computer, uh, a phone, or a tablet, and, and have access to the Internet. So uh, really that's the, the technical requirement, and we don't know yet if there might be some areas that have opened up to provide some, some of that access by May the 12th. We're, we're cautiously optimistic about that. But, but what does the experience look like? It's really very similar to uh, a, an in-person job fair. You'll be able to come into a large uh, hall. You will then be able to uh, move from booth to booth where the employers have set up information about their job opportunities, about their company. And then you'll be able, the job seeker will say, here, I want to, sh- to, sh- to show you my resume and show that to the, to the, uh, to the uh, company representative. And the power of this is company representatives can be on from, from not only their office, but from home. So in fact, compared for a company, uh, there's some advantages that they can actually uh, have more people involved without having to send them to, as you mentioned, a physical location and be able to, to connect, have a chat uh, either uh, by text or, or by a call or by video, all through this particular platform that the London Area Works team have selected. So the job seeker can go from company to company. And I should add that so far, uh, we have uh, over 600 jobs that the company said they're recruiting for. Some are full-time, or sorry, most are full-time, and there are some part-time options. And there's also a range of employers from those in, in healthcare, uh, transportation, manufacturing. We're expecting some from the tech, techno, uh, tech, uh, from the IT sector to join us shortly, etc. So quite a nice range of jobs uh, for for both people with um, technical skills, but also some entry level roles as well. That's really interesting. So it's it's like a virtual conference center, if you will, and yeah. uh, even even though you're not there physically roaming around, you are virtually. Exactly. So it, 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 it has the look and feel, and that's the sort of the, that's why we chose this platform, so that for people who have been to a job fair, even though it's, it, it's in a sort of a technical or virtual situation, they should be able to sort of feel a sense of, aha, I have been to an in-person job fair perhaps, uh, but here I can make those connections. I can ask some of the questions I wanted to ask an, an employer about those positions. I can have three or four questions from the employer about, about to really clarify the skills on the resume and to make that personal connection and then build that connection to follow up later. Fantastic. And Robert, if people are interested in learning more about uh, this virtual job fair and how they kind of get registered for it, uh, how can they go about doing that? Well, well, first of all, let me say we've got two audiences for this. And I, and I think for employers, we really would like you to sort of have a look at this and to see how it fits with your needs. And if you go to ledc.com slash events, and then you'll see the London and Area Works uh, virtual job fair and all the registration details. Now, for job seekers, we're not quite there ready with the, the full platform yet, but uh, please 
make a note of it and start looking, say, next Tuesday at londonareaworks.vfairs.com. Londonareaworks, all one word, dot vfairs.com. And we're really looking forward to uh, connecting. In the past, when it's been an in-person job fair, uh, we've had uh, over 2,500 job seekers sort of through the, the real door. We're not expecting quite that many. And by the way, the system can accommodate that many. But we do think this is a really good opportunity, as I say, not only to discover the employment opportunities that empl- that employers have, and we know that uh, more will be joining us soon, but also that those important free employment services, which can really help people uh, really get ready for returning to work. Absolutely. Well, it sounds like there's uh, lots to look forward to with that. And I know that we'll have all the details on our website as well, 980cfpl.ca, so people can access them there too. Robert, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. And I'm, I'm so glad to learn about this virtual job fair. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of interest in it. Okay, thank you so much. Take care. You Jeff. take care. Be well. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's Robert Collins, Director of Workforce Development for the London Economic Development Corporation, talking about a virtual job fair. It's coming up. Also coming up is the 430 News with Andrew Graham. When we come back from that, we'll be talking with Constable Sandasha Bow of the London Police about a fraud investigation that's had some developments even in the last little while, and then checking in with our very own Andrew Graham once more for his connection to this investigation. That's coming up on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to your afternoon show on this Friday, the 24th of April. So we often get a lot of information in our newsroom about different scams that are out there. And obviously, we were just talking to John Wonderlick as well about, uh, you know, online scams. But there was a notice sent out today by London police about an in-person scam, if you will. And it involves uh, an individual that officers are looking for who goes around and tries to get people to loan them some money for tow truck services. And joining me on the line now to kind of explain this whole thing and also give us some really important information about, you know, just protecting ourselves is Constable Sandasha Bow of London Police. Constable Bao, thanks so much for taking some time this afternoon to chat with us. I appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. So we've had uh, this statement sent out from London Police about an investigation relating to uh, frauds. And I I was a little uh, surprised by it. But, uh, you know, fraud uh, situations come and go every single day. And people are always coming up with with schemes to try and take advantage of people. Uh, Tell us a little bit about this one. Well, just like you said, people come up with different schemes or frauds or scams pretty much daily. And so we try and remind the public on a regular basis not to fall for these things. But in this particular case, there's an individual and the London Police Service Financial Crime Unit actually believes that the same individual is responsible for a number of different crimes. Now, they're all fraud-related, and they're all including uh, this particular suspect who asks for cash 
to pay for towing services and then promises to repay that victim back in the form of an e-transfer. But once the cash is received, the suspect ceases all communication with the victim and they never get that money back. Which is, you know, awful. First of all, people out of the goodness of their hearts are, you know, uh, trying to offer some help to someone who uh, they don't know. Uh, and then to have that uh, kindness repaid with uh, just a fraud, an absolute terrible thing. Uh, it's really heartbreaking, you know? It definitely is. Now, this individual has actually um, defrauded people in a number of different areas. So we really wanted to push out to the public that. Uh, this person could be anywhere and uh, he's approached people in shopping malls in the parking lots of shopping malls in common areas of uh, apartment buildings and uh, just the fact that there have been a number of different victims we believe that there's probably more out there and we really want to let the public know of this particular fraud and if you have been uh, defrauded of any sum of money from this individual or any individual, we're really encouraging the public to contact us and let us know. Absolutely, because it, it, even if it's uh, you know a, a, an incident where you didn't give them money, but it still happened to you, it helps to establish uh, you know a, a timeline or a pattern. So it's good to let officers know. Yes, definitely. And we also want to remind the public that providing money to a stranger under, under circumstances like this, it's not advisable. And unless you actually know the person, and even in those cases, there's a, there's a chance that you could be defrauded, but just ensure that you know uh, who it is that you're providing that money to. And if it doesn't seem legitimate, then you can always give us a call for advice as well. Now, we do have a London Police Fraud Intake Line, and we're encouraging members of the public, if you've been defrauded um, or if you actually know the identity of this particular suspect, to please give us a call. We have added photos on our website as well. Absolutely. And uh, we have the description of the suspect on our website, 980cfpl.ca, with all the details there uh, so people can take a look at it and, uh, you know, see if they, they can identify this individual or if, you know, they've been approached. Uh, heaven forbid they've actually been uh, defrauded because that's a significant sum of money. Uh, you know, when you have to tow a vehicle, it's, it's not a spare change. You know, it's, it's a lot of money. It is a lot of money, but like we're saying, if you've been defrauded of any sum of money, we're really encouraging you to contact us. Now, I'll give you the, the fraud intake line number, just in case anybody isn't aware. It's 519-661-5515, extension 5257. Perfect. And uh, we'll make sure that that's also on the web uh, for anyone who's reading the story to uh, make sure they have access to it if they need to get in touch. Constable Bao, thanks so much for your time this afternoon, and uh, we wish you a safe and, and healthy weekend. All right. Thank you so much, Jeff. Position of uh, two things here. Uh, one, there's been an update from London Police just in the last little while that they have identified the suspect involved in this case. Uh, they are not in custody, so they're still looking for the individual. Uh, and we have all of that information again on our website, 980cfpl.ca, including the description and pictures of the suspect. Um, but the other unique thing is that we have Andrew Graham on the line right now, a 980cfpl reporter, anchor, web producer extraordinaire. Andrew, thanks for joining us. No worries. Thank you for having me. 
It's nice to chat with you. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's been a long time. <laughs> I know. It's been a long time for sure. Um, but you uh, actually sprang to mind this morning when I saw this release from police because you actually uh, had an encounter with uh, someone matching this description and this uh, MO. Uh, tell me about what happened. Yeah, well, um, I mean, first of all, when I saw the release from police this morning, um, it was kind of uh, wild because, like you mentioned, you actually suggested, said, hey, Andrew, weren't you the one who kind of ran into this guy earlier? And it turns out um, it appears so. So it was on February 20th, and I remember the date because I was working that day. I was doing a story on Via Rail. They had their first trains in a while departing because of the blockades. And I was going there around 6 a.m., 5.30 a.m. or so. And for those who don't know, 980 CFPL is located in downtown London, right by City Plaza. And I'm walking towards City Plaza, and there's this guy beside me. And he's following me and following me. I don't really know him. And again, this is like 5.30 a.m., so no one's on the street at all. So it's just a bit odd, you know, to be followed by someone. And we cross the street. He approaches me. He says, hey, man, um, do you know this city well? Like, have you been around London a long time? And I'm a lifetime Londoner, so I said, yeah, I know this city well. And then um, nothing happens, and then a few minutes pass, and then he says, well, listen, um, I locked my keys out of my car. I need money for a towing service. Um, would you be cool if we went to an ATM and like you just took out some cash for me? And then right away, I've I've heard stories of that sort of scam before, uh, especially even in London, something similar to that. So that kind of just clicked. Thankfully, I had that knowledge. Um, so I just said, oh, I can't help you right now. I'm at work. I have to go to Via Rail, whatever else. I just got out of the situation. And again, thankfully, I'm incredibly grateful that nothing bad happened. But that was the first time I ever had an encounter like that. And um, yeah, it was just very odd to see that months later, again, this was back in February, so to see like a few months later that now police are seeking who appears to be the same guy, it's just weird to put those two together. Yeah, absolutely. And first of all, let me just say that February feels like years ago. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> like, I can't believe that it was only that short amount of time, but uh, it feels like a lot longer. But yeah, it definitely is a strange experience to know that uh, what you, uh, you know, kind of went through in that that incident uh, is, is legit. And other people, unfortunately, have uh, fallen for it and actually, you know, tried to help somebody out and it wound up kind of biting them, uh, coming back to, to bite them, unfortunately, because uh, it's, you know, I mean, that's that's kind of what scammers tend to do is they try to pull on your heartstrings and say, hey, I'm jammed up. Can you help me out? And it's really unfortunate. And it's funny you mentioned that because I remember immediately after it happened and after I got out of the situation, when I hadn't yet processed it, immediately I, I started thinking, I feel really bad for this guy. You know, he needs to get into his car. He just has bad luck. But then right away I snapped back like, wait, no, wait a second. You know, I could have potentially put myself into danger. I'm actually not guilty here. So, I mean, like you said, it really pulls on the heartstrings and it puts you in a tough position if you're on the receiving end of that, um, of that kind of operation there. Yeah, absolutely. And now, Andrew, I know that you were you were trying to get through uh, during your busy day there uh, to London Police to to file a report on this and just kind of give them any additional information that you might be able to. Have you been able to get through yet? Uh, not at the moment. I'm, I'm assuming they're incredibly busy right now. I mean, I know it's a busy time for them. But um, I was just hoping to get some information I could to them. But again, as I mentioned, thankfully, I did not fall victim to um, any 
sort of fraud or anything like that. Um, so really, I'm just grateful. And, and it's funny, too. I mean, I remember talking to my brother about this. My brother, for those who don't know, he's an RCMP officer in Alberta. So I remember uh, video calling him that day, telling, this, telling him this whole story. And he was like, yeah, you almost got scammed there. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> you've seen this before. So, and, and he told me, too, you know, like, you did the right thing. You don't want to be hostile in those situations. You just want to get out of there because, um, again, like, you just don't want to put yourself in danger, right? So. Yeah, for sure. No, I remember the conversation too when you came back to the newsroom, how yep. we were all like, wow, that's a, <laughs> that's a new one. I haven't heard that before. You need yeah, help yeah. for a tow truck. Okay. Still got the story so, though. We still got the story at the, the day. So that was good. <laughs> that's right. And we are very thankful that uh, uh, we always have you on our team and that you're safe and well then and as you are now. And uh, Andrew, it's it's great chatting with you and I hope you're doing okay and that you have a good weekend, my friend. You too, Jess. Thanks for having me. Take care. Bye. Bye. That's Andrew Graham, ace reporter for 980 CFPL, also acting as our uh, midday and afternoon anchor right now for the news. We need to take a quick break for our traffic and weather report. When we come back, we're talking about our locally owned and awesome businesses of the day. That's coming up on 980 CFPL. <laughs> Welcome back to your afternoon show here on 980 CFPL. It's that time of the show. It's time to talk about our locally owned and awesome businesses of the day presented by Ontario West Insurance Brokers and also the London Police Association. Matt, are you ready? I'm ready. It's business time. All right. And uh, I got to tell you, our first business will be uh, very kind to our tummies because it, it, does, it doesn't involve uh, food. But <laughs> the second business... Uh, we're gonna we're gonna feel some some hurting, I think, just because it looks so delectable. Oh no! I know. I'm gonna make you do business too. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Aren't I nice? Aren't I a nice person? Yeah. Um, okay. Here we go. Our first locally owned and awesome business of the day. Drum roll, please. It is Guildwood Lighting and Fireside. Nice. They are located at 5 York Street here in London. Their phone number is 519-438-6161. You can also find them online at www.guildwoodlighting.ca. So Guildwood Lighting and Fireside, they're family owned and operated since 1963, right in the downtown core. On their Facebook page, there's a link to an awesome contest that they are running to win two prizes of a full home lighting makeover. Ooh. Ooh. And everyone who enters can receive a $25 credit. So you can find them on Facebook. Uh, just type in facebook.com forward slash Guildwood Lighting, and that should take you to them. And they say in these times of darkness, they just want to provide some light, which I think is a beautiful, beautiful thing to say. A nice sentiment. And uh, I know that in my drives around the city, uh, I've often seen uh, Guildwood lighting right there on york street there they have a big like window into their shop and you can just see tons of lamps and uh lighting fixtures and it's really a beautiful store uh and all the gorgeous things that they have there so yeah guildwood lighting and fireside you can win one of those two prizes of a full home lighting makeover which sounds absolutely delightful um and lighting is a tricky thing because you want to set the right mood in your home and uh you know pieces of lighting just 
can set the tone really, really nicely. So you can check in with Guildwood Lighting and Fireside with their pros. I'm sure that they will be able to uh, advise you on what would work best with your space um, and, you know, just hook you up with whatever you need, which is really, really awesome. So there you go. Yeah, that's Business nice. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, if you're looking for a, looking for a hobby in this time, if you, you know, if you can sprucing up the place, isn't a, isn't a bad idea. Make it look nice, more comfortable, maybe. Absolutely. I'm just looking at their Facebook page here too. Uh, looking at some of the, uh, fireplace options that they have. They have one, one of those like double-sided ones. That's actually like uh, inlaid in a wall so it, you can see right through there's like a, a very large rectangular Ooh. opening with the fire at the base and you can see right through to the other side i know that a lot of interior designers uh will use that as a way to open up a space brighten it up improve the flow uh, in these times of open concept people really like to do that if you can't knock down a wall entirely then you know if perhaps if it's load bearing or whatever uh, you can do some kind of neat piece like that focus a focal point if you will in the room i watch a lot of home design shows <laughs> <laughs> and reno shows uh, i'm really grateful for the free preview of uh HGTV right now. <laughs> I don't usually have that at my place. Um, my parents' cable package is excellent. They get all the channels. I don't usually, but uh, right now I do. So I'm really taking advantage of that, as you can tell. Um, but yeah, no, it's it's all about those those nice pieces that you can bring into your home and and really kind of show off your character and the character of your home. Though the the experts at uh, Guildwood Lighting and Fireside will hook you up with whatever you need and what works best with your space. So there you go. Excellent. Yeah, that's that's our business number one. So, and again, you can uh, get in touch with them by calling 519-438-6161. Then you can go online to their website, guildwoodlighting.ca. You can find them there. So there you have it. Well, are you I, ready? I'm ready for business number two. This is, is going to be Are you ready to suffer? <laughs> oh, my word. <laughs> okay, hold on. I will. I will give you a drum roll. Hold on. Here it comes. The second locally owned and awesome business of the day is Mama's Hot Italian Sandwiches. <laughs> oh, come uh, on. Sorry, not sorry, friend. <laughs> no, it's okay. So you can find uh, Mama's Hot Italian Sandwiches. They're at uh, 797 York Street here in London. Give them a ring at 519-645-6262. Website is Mama's Hot Italian Sandwiches.com. Mama is spelled M-A-M-A. Um, and well, name kind of says everything. Uh, they're fresh and bursting with flavor. Uh, they've been serving the London area for a long time. They provide amazing hot Italian sandwiches with fresh, high quality ingredients. And, uh, if you were to go there, hopefully when they go, you know, open back up, it's a great atmosphere, friendly service, affordable prices. They're the home of the big sandwich. If that's not <laughs> enticing enough. You can't go wrong. Oh, and I'm on their website right now, mamashotitaliansandwiches.com. They have a little slideshow of the different Sammies they have. And oh, man. It sounds really good. I'm looking at it now, too. Oh, they've got some like some nice olives as well. Uh, mm -hmm. Look at this. They even have pasta dishes. And uh, ooh, that looks like some a, a take on sin there with some... Mm -hmm. uh, some nice sauce on top of it with some cheese. Oh, yeah. Those poutine fries. Yeah, yeah. this is looking real good. Not going to lie. It's it's rough. I, just reading just reading about the veal sandwich or the meatball sandwich, it's... Oh. Yeah. 
<laughs> it's true. And they do also have some uh, daily specials as well. And I believe that they have options for delivery. Uh, so if you're looking to place an order from them, definitely give them a call. Uh, again, their phone number is 519-645-6262. And you can also email them too, if you have some some questions uh, regarding, uh, you know, what time they're open and things like that. Uh, you can email them at mamassandwiches at gmail.com. And then again, that's on their website as well, if you're looking for that. So yeah, that's, that's looking real tasty. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Oh, just their banner is just like this delicious sandwich with the cheese just at melting point. And I can't yeah. I, close on that. Hit the X button. <laughs> okay. Which is probably a good thing because we have to go for the five o'clock news. We have to check in with Andrew Graham. Uh, Matt, thank you once again for this. We'll check in with you again in an, another little while. Absolutely. All right. Off to the news with Andrew Graham. That's on 980 CFEL. Welcome back to your afternoon show here on 980 CFPL. Jess Brady, hanging out with you until six o'clock. Hard to believe we're into the final hour of this program. It whizzes by every single day, but I'm always surprised by it. So one of the things that might surprise you was a story that was in the London Free Press. I believe it went out today. And it's talking about stats of uh, people across the province, Ontario, and which cities, I guess, how they rank in terms of number of people refusing to work at this time based on uh, safety concerns. And so across the province, London ranks third in cases where people are refusing to go to work over safety concerns during this time that is, of course, the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, the GTA is up there, I think, in, in first place. And then Toronto proper is second, I believe. And then we are third. And that's quite something across the entire province to be number three there. Um, and one of the individuals who uh, the Freeps, London Free Press, uh, reached out to for comment on this was Michael Link. And he's a labor law professor at Western. And he joins me now on the line. And I'm so grateful that he could take some time this afternoon to chat with me. Uh, Michael, thank you for, for coming on the show. My pleasure, Jess. So let me ask you, were you surprised by the stats that London falls in, in third place for this? Initially, yes, because um, we're not the biggest or even the third biggest uh, metropolitan center in, uh, in Ontario. But, but upon reflection, it actually makes a lot of sense. We uh, are a very high employer of public sector workers. They tend to be highly unionized. You think of universities or community colleges or municipality, particularly our, our hospitals and school boards our jails and our transit system. And all of those um, have employees represented by, uh, by unions. And because there's a union in the workplace, um, its members uh, tend to be more informed about uh, what their workplace rights are, including the right to refuse unsafe work. And they're probably more forthright or braver in wanting to exercise those rights because they know they have the protection of a collective agreement and a union that would support them uh, in those cases. So um, once I thought about the uh, the, the figures um, and put them in perspective, it, it made a lot of sense to me. 
I also feel that it makes sense when we're looking at the at the I guess the climate that we're in right now. This isn't necessarily you know refusing work because uh, you know say like a construction site and you feel it's unsafe. This is a situation where we're dealing with uh, a, a virus, and there's not necessarily always the equipment that we need to to fight back against that. So personal protective equipment, face masks, gloves. Uh, it's more complex than say one any physical element that could be easily corrected. Yeah, I agree with you entirely, and it would be interesting to see what the more recent figures are um, uh, through April as um, as employers in general and hospitals and healthcare centers in particular have had to gear up with respect to uh, uh, PPE. Um, a lot of the refusals, I understand, in Ottawa, in London, have come from um, uh, hospitals. Um, nurses in particular are almost uniformly uh, unionized in in all of the uh, healthcare centers in, uh, in the London area, and hospitals in many cases were uh, didn't have adequate amounts, uh, numbers of equipment or types of equipment in the early days of the pandemic hitting here when other um, when other facilities were shutting down, people were were getting ill, and we probably knew a lot less six weeks ago than we knew now. So that helps to explain, I think why we see the jump in the numbers of, uh, of right-to-refuse complaints being made, uh, particularly in, uh, in hospitals. I think uh, what was uh, cited in the newspaper today that um, the majority, at least not the majority, but the leading uh, location of employment came from the London Health uh, Sciences Centre as the most reported employer where w- work refusals were occurring. Yes, I, I, I do believe so. And I, I get, they've also in that piece, you know, reached out for comment and uh, of, I think, in total, I believe it was 22 complaints for the London city itself. Um, there was only one workplace, I think, that was uh, cited with a, a compliance uh, issuance or something of that nature. It wasn't it wasn't LHSC, I don't believe. Um, but it, it's it's interesting to see the breakdown and where those those complaints are coming from. I think it'll also be interesting as we move through and more businesses are opening back up if we see a, an increase in those types of complaints. Sure, that that's uh, that's a real possibility as the uh, economy begins to wake up again and. Uh, and non-essential businesses uh, wind up resuming. We're going to have to learn, because we don't have a vaccine in sight and won't probably for another 8 to 15 months, we're going to have to learn a whole new protocol at work with respect to how we distance from each other, uh, with respect to how we perform our particular tasks at at work. Um, We're probably going to see a lot of people um, continuing where they can, continuing to, uh, to wind up working from home, um, and this may become, in many ways, the, the new normal in order to be able to prevent that. And most, you know, most, I, I would say probably all conscientious uh, employers know that um, it's the key to being able to reestablish economic success with their particular operation is going to be, number one, keeping their own employees safe and confident that their best interests are being looked after by the employer, and two, that their customers and clients are, uh, are going to feel safe wanting to come into that particular workplace if, if indeed it, it uh, caters to the public and know that they're going to be safe as well. So we're going to have to um, radically rethink um, how we approach these issues. And the right to refuse on safe work is statutorily guaranteed in the Occupational Health and Safety Act. And as I said, you know, unions have long, uh, have long known about this. They, they fought for this right to be statutorily included back in the 1970s. And I can only assume that as the economy more widely wakes up, um, 
employees either in unionized workplaces or non-unionized workplaces are going to are going to um, start using or exercising their uh, their right to refuse if they consider the uh, that their, their their health or protection is being put into into danger because many more workers now know of the right to refuse than knew 6 weeks ago Absolutely. That kind of was what I wanted to ask you about next was that uh, we're all going to be so much more aware of that and demand more of each other uh, in the business world and retail, wherever, whether we are employees or customers. I think people will have their eagle eyes out to, you know, look for any missteps and, and kind of call people on it before it can, you know, escalate and go further. Right. And when you look at the actual right, and here you've got a lawyer speaking, it's actually a, very, a relatively low standard which can actually trigger off the investigation is to determine whether or not work is being uh, performed in an unsafe way. All that a worker needs under the first step um, in the Occupational Health and Safety Act is a quote-unquote reason to believe, quoting Rod Stewart, um, mm-hmm. to, uh, um, to trigger this off. Uh, the employer is then required to um, begin an investigation. If the employer decides that the work is not unsafe, the worker has an ongoing right to refuse, and then it'll, the, the second stage would be bringing in a Ontario Ministry of, uh, of Labor inspector who will then make a determination. And the inspector, the, if it wants to be agreeing with the employer, the employee then uh, would require to go back to work. If the uh, inspector finds that there is unsafe work, then that work should not be performed until uh, the work is made safe again. Um, and this, this is a standard <clears throat> and a practice and a process we've been using for the best part of the last 40 years on this. And as I said, I expect to see a spike in, uh, in this once the economy um, begins to move back into full gear, simply because workers are much more conscious of their rights um, and, and they'll be aware that, uh, that we're going to have a gap in protection until we have a, a, va- a vaccine that's available in mass quantities. Uh, yeah, I, I would I would tend to agree with that assessment for sure. I, I feel like people will be a lot more nervous and uh, will, I, yeah, I think that they'll just want to err on the side of caution and say, you know what, I'd rather raise a red flag about this than say nothing and have it turn into something potentially dangerous. Exactly. And one of the, uh, one of the areas that, uh, that the Act makes exception for um, is for those workers who work in, um, in jobs that have an inherent danger to them, police fire, um, medical staff in, in hospitals, they nevertheless still have a limited right to be able to refuse unsafe work. And that's where I think we're seeing a lot of, um, a lot of these right, uh, 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 rights being exercised over the past uh, five or six weeks. And um, I, I know that there has been a number of inspections being done by um, Ministry of Health inspectors, sorry, Ministry of Labor inspectors going into hospitals because nurses or other healthcare workers have said that they don't feel safe treating patients who may have COVID-19 without the full and proper array of, uh, of PPE available to them. Now, I think most hospitals have, have hopefully caught up with the ability to be able to have a steady supply of, of masks um, and other forms of protective equipment to their workers. So we may well see a drop uh, in the um, instances of these uh, right to refuse uh, coming about. But as I said, I think we're going to see uh, that happening more in the, among the general workforce as the economy wakes up. 
Well, we will uh, keep an eye on all of it. And, uh, you know, we may just check back in with you there, uh, Michael, to get your thoughts on, on how things develop and whatever numbers may come down the line here. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you and getting your take on this. I appreciate it. My pleasure is all mine, Jess. Thank you very much for the interview. You take care. All the best to you. Have a good weekend. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's Michael Link, a labor law professor at Western University, talking about uh, the rate of right to refuse complaints here in the, in the city of London. And uh, if you want to read a little bit more uh, detail about that, you can uh, check out the coverage. London Free Press had a story about it today. We rank third in the province, London, behind the GTA and Toronto proper with the one and two places. We are third in terms of work refusals right now. And I believe that data was from around the end of March or so. It doesn't really take into account April. As uh, Professor Link was saying, it will be interesting to see the even more recent data on that. So we need to take a little bit of a break for traffic and weather. We'll be right back on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to your afternoon show on 980 CFPL. I said it earlier, but I, I really do hope you've had a, a good Friday so far. It's not very sunny out. I was hopeful that perhaps uh, the cloud cover would break up there during the show. It hasn't. It's still a little bit uh, dreary outside, but that's okay. It's Friday. At least there's that for whatever Friday means anymore. <laughs> As we joked about, it's it's not entirely clear uh, sometimes the days of the week and if it holds any meaning. But you know what? We're still here to tell you what day of the week it is. And that's important. You have to have some uh, some regularity. And, and we will gladly provide that for you here at 980 CFPL. Just wanted to take a minute to uh, tee up a discussion that we'll be having on the other side of our 530 news package, which is uh, just a couple of minutes away. Uh, we're going to check in with Megan Walker, Executive Director of the London Abused Women's Centre, uh, talking about a, a topic that we have touched upon in the last few weeks, but we're really going to delve into it a little bit more now with some recent information from Locke uh, related to young young girls younger, even in their teens or what have you, uh, being approached online. Yeah, not great. Uh, predators essentially looking to capitalize on young people being online a lot more now because they're home, they're not in school. A lot of their day-to-day -day activities are happening online. And uh, Megan Walker is going to join us in, in a little bit to talk about what they're seeing at Locke right now and some of the calls that they've been receiving from concerned uh, parents and individuals in general about what's going on there. So we're going to have a chat with her uh, right after the 530 News about that and what we should all be mindful of and what we need to, uh, you know, do to protect our loved ones. So we're going to take that break now for the 530 News with Andrew Graham right here on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to your afternoon show here on 980 CFPL. I'm your host, Jess Brady. As we've talked about a few times now over the last couple of weeks, we are seeing an increase in attempts to victimize people online across a number of, uh, I guess, avenues, 
So people are trying to capitalize on scamming you into giving them money, into pilfering your personal data online. But also there are other abuses happening very sadly online right now because there are a lot more people, especially a lot more young people using uh, online resources just on their phones a lot more, on their computers. And sadly, that means that predators who look to capitalize on that are trying to take advantage of it and, and trying to, you know, make inroads with potential victims. And Megan Walker, executive director of the London Abused Women's Center, was commenting on Twitter earlier today about a national story uh, where officials across the, the country are saying they're seeing an uptick in reports of this type of behavior. And Megan, you know, tweeted out some some stats uh, or just some numbers locally of what they're seeing at, at Locke. And she joins me now on the line to discuss this further. Megan, thank you for your time this afternoon. Oh, thank you, Jess. Hey, it's always, uh, you know, a pleasure to chat with you uh, because, you know, you're you're bringing important information to light. And uh, I wish it was, you know, happier information, but it's good that we're able to discuss it. Uh, tell us what's the latest from Locke in, in terms of, uh, you know, this type of behavior that's being reported. So we do provide service to women and girls over the age of 12 who are um, exploited um, or trafficked, sexually exploited or trafficked. And in addition to that specific service, we provide service to family members whose daughters have gone missing or disappeared, have disappeared um, at a young age sometimes and suspect that it's due to sexual exploitation. So we have that reputation um, of doing that work, and we do great work in that area. And since March break, um, you know, we sort of started off with not much happening that first week of March break, but between that second week of March break or when the kids didn't come back to school and actually Monday of this week, we'd received six phone calls from parents um, in southwestern Ontario who's, um, who advised us that regrettably their, their daughters, um, some underage, um, had been kind of lured uh, into removing their clothing and doing things to themselves, um, and then they discovered that uh, those videos were uploaded uh, to pornography sites. So um, it's much more complicated than what I'm sort of saying because it's just sort of quite um, graphic. But anyway, it's uh, it's been horrendous for family members, as you can imagine. Now, the, the, the children are safe at home, um, which is a good thing, but they're, um, the videos of them or in the naked pictures uh, are now on porn sites, and we will work to have those taken down. But even if we are successful in having them taken down, once something is really posted, it's out there forever. So this has been difficult, and of course, you know, we talk to parents all the time about this, and, you know, of course, kids are now a little bit maybe bored, they're not allowed to leave, so they're taking to the internet more than they maybe once did, uh, but... I think what's important is that parents understand that this is what's happening on the Internet, that while technology has provided us with some amazing tools, it's also provided us as a society with opportunities to exploit others. And, um, of course, this is pretty detrimental to a family to experience this and to parents who have always tried to say to their children and teach their children about these things on the internet. So 
one of the things I always say to parents, which is so true, is that we can tell our kids as, as often as possible not to go on the Internet and expose themselves, you know, because they're being asked to. But the reality is that we still live in a society where girls grow up to believe their value comes from the attraction boys and men give to them. And so often they are coerced really by... Um, a, a, a very good con man into, um, you know, they believe, well, he, this man really cares about me or this boy cares about me. And um, and we really need to shift that. And we always talk about shifting the culture for future generations so that girls understand that their value comes from who they are. And boys understand growing up that girls are human beings with human rights um, and uh, deserve the uh, utmost respect and freedom from oppression. But we have a long way to go for that. It's, you know, uh, it's, it's an overwhelming uh, feeling sometimes when we talk about these stories, uh, because there is such a long way to go and your heart breaks for any of the individuals who have been, uh, you know, hurt by this uh, terrible, terrible crime, uh, where people are, you know, lured into uh, sending in those images or, or videos and then having that trust, which was obviously misplaced, exploited and uh, just on, on such a scale for it to be posted online. It's it's something that we're seeing spoken of more in pop culture um, for any Coronation Street fans out there. If you're up to date with the show in the UK, uh, there's a storyline right now about this, a teen character oh. who is uh, dealing with this sort of fallout of, of something that was sent to a friend and then whoop, it's out everywhere now. So uh, the more we talk about it, I feel like the better chances we have of breaking through and reaching people and saying, hey, listen, this is going on right now. We have to be prepared for these types of discussions. We absolutely do and you know on my office uh, door I have a picture of Retea Parsons and Amanda Todd and they were two individuals that were sexually exploited online um, 15 and 17 years old and for me um, uh, it was heartbreaking of course to hear their stories and know that they killed themselves um, you know, they died by suicide because of the incredible trauma they experienced. And it's a constant reminder to me that this happens and it's happening. And one of the things we need to remember is that the London Abuse Women's Centre may have received six phone calls from parents um, from southwestern Ontario, but multiple organizations across this country are receiving calls every single day. So... Um, I always also want to remind people that there is criminal legislation um, around this. So child pornography obviously is illegal, um, but it's also illegal. Um, you know, if, even if the courts say, well, you did take your own clothes off and you did these acts, that doesn't mean she's given permission for that man to post them on the Internet, and that's illegal. There's no consent for posting that. So there are strategies, and of course child pornography is um, a child protection issue as well, and so we always say to parents, your first call should be to the London Police Service and he, or whatever their police service is and provide them with the numbers for that, um, and also to make sure that they um, understand through policing the um, legislation that can maybe help undo some of this, or at least have that victim's voice heard. Absolutely. Yeah. Some kind of uh, recognition that this is not okay and that there are consequences for that behavior to, to the offender. So yeah. it is really important to, to highlight that. And I'm glad you did. So it's tough times, you know, it's really tough times in today's society 
to um, have children, I think. It's much harder than it was for me when I was a kid, for my mom when I was a kid. I mean, I remember when I was growing up, we didn't have technology, and we spent our entire days outside in the fields and the parks and came home when we were hungry. Um, and we always knew our neighbors, and we could count on our neighbors, and we all took care of one another. And I think what's happened now is um, technology has really... Um, normalized, sexualized violence against women and girls, um, which is a huge cause for concern. And, you know, pornography, child pornography is so um, demanded. It's really highly demanded by men. And we also need to recognize that extreme forms of violence against women in pornography is also demanded. And so... Um, these, these are really hard times, and it's a hard time for a kid to be at home alone right now, or not alone, but without friends, and not have access to friends. And I worry that the longer this goes on, although I'm very supportive of the isolation um, instructions, but the longer it goes on, I worry that we're going to see more um, incidents. Well, hopefully, you know, we'll be able to uh, cut down on, on on some of the fallout if we, you know, keep having these types of discussions and parents are tuning in and having chats with their kids and, and trying to stay as, vo- as involved as possible with them uh, and let them know, you know, that their devices really should not be for that sort of behavior and they check in and they know who they're talking to. But uh, I know that we'll continue to check in with you, Megan, uh, on, on t- in terms of what's going on and, and the response from Locke to these issues and just thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me on and for raising um, awareness about the issue and you take good care. You as well, Megan. Have a good weekend. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's Megan Walker, Executive Director of the London Abused Women's Centre, talking about uh, an uptick in incidents of, of families calling in to ask for advice and what to do when their young ones are victimized online. We need to take a break. When we come back, we're talking about bright spots of the day on this Friday. That's on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to the afternoon show on this Friday. It makes bright spots of the day even better because it's a Friday, right, Matt? Absolutely. It's the best way to end your week, I think. (laughs) I think so too. It's good to have uh, have some some light moments, especially in this uh, day and age that we're in. A lot of our show topics can be a little heavy, so it's nice to finish things off with uh, with some some lightness there. You know, yeah. just a little fun. Yeah, um, we have three bright spots of the day today. Excellent. Well, at least, I mean, who knows? Something else could come up <laughs> in the next uh, eight minutes or so. But uh, we have three to start. Um, one relates to one of our interviews from earlier on, the very first interview of the show uh, with Dr. Lee Sowerby. Um, he is a, a, a surgeon, like a, he, he does like nasal surgeries and things like that. And uh, what they, what we were talking to Dr. Sowerby about is the study that Lawson and Western is involved in uh, investigating the loss of smell and taste with relation to COVID-19. So just a little refresher there. Um, but as I was reading uh, some of the information about Dr. Sowerby, uh, his actual, one of his, like his, his specialty um, 
it had an interesting name and I was like, I have never heard of this name before. (laughs) (laughs) So I actually, I I Googled it obviously. And then I wanted to try and find a pronouncer for it. Um, and I did, and I will, I will say the name of the specialty and uh, cause I feel like this is a bright spot. You learn something new every day. And uh, this was something that I learned. So I hope I don't mess it up. Here we go. Oh gosh, the pressure's on. Um, it is otolaryngologist. Otolaryngologist. That's, yeah. So I wasn't sure if it was like a hard G uh, in the first the first G, but it is otolaryngologist. Unless the pronouncer videos have lied to me, which is possible. So there you have it. That is, uh, you know, the study of uh, I believe like the the nose and 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 your head. You know, like ear, nose, yeah. and throat specialists. That's that's different, but it's like that. So I, I hope I'm accurately describing it. But otolaryngologist is is how I saw it online to pronounce it. Now, I didn't end up saying it during the segment, but I thought, hey, this is still cool. I want to talk about it. So bright spot. Now we've all learned otolaryngologist. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's better to be prepared. You know, now that's you know, right. It's another <laughs> thing to add to the uh, to the roster to the to the list of can dos. Otolaryngologist. Easy. Yeah. Yeah. Otolaryngologist. <laughs> now, if, you know, if I'm ever reading a story and it comes up, I'll know how to pronounce it because in this biz, um, as, as people probably can imagine, uh, we come across words and, and, uh, names sometimes that we've not encountered before and we need pronouncers, uh, if we're going to even attempt to say them, uh, half decently, you know, and, and that's another thing too, like giving respect to people in terms of trying your best to say their names properly. It's, it's just, you know, an, a courteous thing that we should all strive for, uh, knowing how to pronounce people's names properly and their, their professions and whatever it is that they do. So, um, that one is, uh, that, oh, otolaryngologist there you go i like so there it. you have it yeah if there are any otolaryngologists out there listening i hope that i've done you proud <laughs> <laughs> there you go so who knew that we would say otolaryngologist so much in the span of one show but, not uh, i yeah there you have it <laughs> all right matt over to you for your bright spot of the day so I, I really like this one. Uh, this bright spot relates to uh, all the healthcare workers who are working their hardest out there. Now, this comes from a uh, young Canadian lad, 12 years old, uh, a, a boy named Quinn, uh, mm-hmm. decided that he wanted to help out healthcare workers in some way, shape, or form. Now, Quinn's a smart kid. He has a 3D printer, knows how to use it, knows how to make stuff with his 3D printer, which is impressive enough as it is. Mm-hmm. Quinn decided that he wanted to help healthcare workers alleviate the pressure put on their ears from those surgical masks. Uh-huh. Because you see, if you're wearing a surgical mask all day, those rubber bands are, you know, pretty strong. They're pulling at the back of your ears. It can cause little burns, rashes, uh, bruises. It's it's not very comfortable. No. So Quinn took to his 3D printer. Uh, according to his mother, Heather uh, Roney, I believe is uh, her name. Uh, her Twitter handle is at hroney1. She says, my son Quinn answered a request from local hospitals for help making, quote, ear guards to take the pressure off medical personnel's ears from wearing masks all day. He got busy with his 3D printer and he has turned out hundreds to <gasps> donate. Aww. Hundreds. Now, if you check out the tweet, 45,000 likes, you can see what he made. And it's like this little plastic strap with notches in it. And yeah. it, it kind of acts like a um, like a, a, a clip for the back of your head that the rubber band elastic, uh, elastics go around the notches and keep hmm. it attached to your head instead of your ears. So instead of the mask attaching to your ears, the mask is almost like a headband. That's awesome. It's That's fantastic. 
That's really great. And to have undertaken that at such a young age, he's 12. So amazing. Yeah, yeah he looks like uh, he's a real go-getter. In the picture his mother posted, he's wearing uh, what looks like to be a scout's uniform I with was uh, say. the neckerchief and, and whatnot. So he's clearly a very... Yeah smart lad and very skillful lad when it comes to these things uh if anyone wants to see it i uh i retweeted it you can uh my twitter handle is at matt at the mic so if you want to see that you can get an idea of what it is it's just good on them and hundreds yeah. donated that's fantastic. I love that so much. It's stories like that where people just kind of uh, band together and use their know-how and their skills to help other people out. I, I think that's fabulous. Yeah. That is uh, really great. I, I know that um, there was another uh, story that similar to this. Um, I mean, this little guy, Quinn, is from out in BC, I believe. Um, and uh, here in southwestern Ontario, there was someone else doing something similar with those, with the ear guards. And uh, it's happening in Hamilton, too. It's it's pretty cool. And there's, a, I think, a, a connection with one of our colleagues here in uh, at Global London at 980 CFPL. And it's, uh, it's a, a, a cousin that's actually making these and I think that's just amazing it's so great and uh, who would have thought because I, I never even thought that didn't even cross my mind that it would become a strain on on the ears and how uncomfortable that must be because yeah as you said Matt those are long shifts that they're taking part in yeah yeah, for sure. Well, well, I'm very pleased to hear about that way to go Quinn in BC that's awesome yeah that's nice Um, and now for our, our final bright spot of the day Got to say, you know, it's Friday. You might want to enjoy a bevy or two, you know, and just kick off the weekend. But before I go any further, maybe we should play some music to go with this. I think we should. Matt, hit it. There it is. Making your way in the world yeah. It does. It does take everything you got. And there is a Twitter video that I saw earlier and I retweeted it. And it's of some folks who have decided to build a little mini cheer set, like Cheers Boston Cheers, uh, for squirrels that come into their patio area. And it's all made of wood. It has like three little bar stools and they actually have video of a squirrel coming down their stairs, sitting on the little bar stool at this makeshift uh, bar front taking a little snack, probably some peanuts in this tiny little bowl that they have set out and some bottles, even have a picture of Kobe Bryant in the back. And it is just so cute. Like he looks like he's just chilling, having a drink. Yeah. I love that. He's like on the stool, like properly <laughs> sitting on the stool. It's, it's too good. Yeah, it's really funny. So, and they even have the Cheers music playing in the background as uh, this little guy is sitting there. So, uh, I think it's nice, even if we can't go out and have a drink with our friends at a bar, you know, at least the squirrels can. So, that uh, was pretty sweet. I thought it was adorable. And I've, I've retweeted it there. So, if you want to check it out, you can find it at JessBrady980 on Twitter. So, and with that, I'm going to wish you, Matt, a wonderful weekend. Thank you for all your hard work all week long on the show. No problem, Jess. Hope you have a great weekend as well. Thank you so much. Cheers.